Talking Tech Policy is recorded on Ngunnawal lands. We pay our respects to the traditional custodians of this land and acknowledge their continuing connection to country and the ongoing contributions of their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were, among many things, the first Australian tech innovators. How do we ensure technology makes our lives better? Hi, I'm Johanna Weaver, host of the Talking Tech Policy podcast. I'm a lawyer, a diplomat, and until recently, I was Australia's expert to the United Nations on cyber issues. I've since joined the Australian National University, where I've established the Tech Policy Design Centre. We've launched this podcast because we want to encourage more people to get involved in discussions about how technology is shaping our lives. My guest today is Anirudh Suri. He's the managing partner at the India Internet Fund and the author of a new book, The Great Tech Game, Shaping Geopolitics and the Destinies of Nations. I am super excited about this conversation today. As uh, Anirudh notes in his book, a lot has been written on these subjects, but it has generally been written from a perspective of the EU or the US or the impact that it has in these countries. I really, really enjoyed reading this book because it provides provides a fresh perspective on it and really provides a lot of food for thought for us in terms of the implications of these things and the way these issues are being perceived elsewhere in the world. Anirudh and I first met when he was writing this book and we had a fabulous conversation that you later described as being a bit like being in grad school together. So Anirudh, I hope we can channel channel some of that uh, vibe again today. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks so much, Johanna. Pleasure to be here and pleasure to be uh, speaking again with you. It is. Now, if I can be a little bit cheeky, before we dive into the book, I've always wanted to ask this question of venture of a venture capitalist, and it is, what is it that you actually do? And, and just to paint a picture in my mind of what I think a venture capitalist does, it's kind of a cross between uh, Donald Trump on The Apprentice, not Donald Trump the president, and perhaps some sort of really classy gambling den. Is this, can you um, dispel these myths for me? <laughs> uh, no, so Joanna, basically I think now I've been in the venture capital world for about a decade. And I guess maybe before I started in the world, in this VC world, uh, in the tech VC startup world, uh, I probably had a similar impression, maybe. Um, but you know, from the from the insides, I can tell you that actually it's fairly um, a fairly systematic process of identifying and promoting uh, innovative ideas out there, right? Which which might sound very broad, but I think that it's actually quite an exciting profession in a way because. Uh, it allows you to meet lots and lots of entrepreneurs mm-hmm. every day who are coming up with new ideas, new technologies, new innovations, uh, new ways of doing things that are solving key problems, right? So if you are a problem solver of any kind, uh, you know, then, then it becomes a very exciting uh, process where as a venture capitalist, your day-to-day work is to meet entrepreneurs, evaluate their ideas, evaluate their teams, evaluate the markets that they want to target, right? And, and and help them also evolve their thinking, right? So I think as an early stage venture capitalist, uh, which is what I do, we meet entrepreneurs when sometimes they just have an idea or just have a couple of people in their team and a basic product mm-hmm. may be ready or a prototype ready. And then you really help think through where that could go, right? And, and if you find it interesting enough, if you find it promising enough as a venture capitalist, then you're basically investing some of the money from your venture capital fund into their company, taking an equity share in their startup, and then hoping that 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 the value of that uh, stake that you've taken early on at hopefully a very reasonable valuation will over time grow and give you financial returns as well. But also, more importantly, from my perspective, Joanna, I, you know, I've really enjoyed the process of all of this because then you've seen some of these companies really make an impact. Right, whether in the fintech world, whether in the healthcare tech world, edtech, you you name it, like different aspects of technology, and so you really do have a certain sense of satisfaction post, you know, success of your startups, also. So I would say that that's actually it's quite an exciting profession from that perspective. 
I think this idea of people going into the tech industry to solve problems, um, that that's what motivates people to go into the tech industry has been a little bit lost in the tech lash, if you if we call it that in the little last little while, that, you know, people actually go into the tech industry wanting to make the world a better place. And uh, I think we absolutely need to be pay more attention and be responsible about the impact of that technology going forward. But I think um, not losing sight of that initial impetus for people uh, is something that uh, is useful for us to be reminded of. <laughs> Let's dive into the book. Let's start with the title because I love the title, The Great Tech Game. And of course, The Great Game was, uh, was a phrase that was originally coined by British diplomat uh, Arthur Conley in the 1840s. And he, at the time, was describing competition between the British Empire and the Russian Empire, originally in Afghanistan, but then in uh, in Central and South Asia, Persia, India. Um, so I, I love the way that you've picked up on that competition element, but also the regional dynamic uh, and, and in particular the importance of India to the great tech game. What motivated you to write this book and what is it that you want readers to understand out of reading this book? Yeah. Uh, no, thank you, Joanna. So, uh, you know, I, I, as a student of geopolitics, I was obviously very familiar with with the great tech game, the, the great game rather, mm. sorry, uh, that you described uh, between Russia and uh, Britain back in the day. And uh, for me, you know, the, the main reason for writing this book has come from the fact that as a tech VC, uh, as we were just discussing, Joanna, I was finding that a lot of people both in the tech world that I was uh, spending a lot of my time with, but also people from outside the tech world, both segments seem to be lacking a, the, the big picture of how tech was shaping our world, right? So I think a lot of people yeah. in India and I think elsewhere even in the US or Europe and uh, possibly in Australia as well, see tech startups as a sector of the economy that seems to be growing rapidly, that seems to be creating unicorns and high valuation companies and millionaires and billionaires, etc. But to me, there was a bigger picture that I think in all this emphasis on valuations and unicorns and fund funding rounds, we were missing, right? Both within the tech world and outside. Right? We were forgetting the fact that at least from where I saw it, the way I saw it, like today we're living through a great transformative era, much like the Industrial Revolution, much like the Agricultural Revolution, much like I would say the era of colonization that the world went through. These large shapers of the world, shaping trends of the world, to me are today uh, equivalent to how tech is shaping our world today. Right, it's mm. completely transforming. Obviously, the geopolitics of our world. It's completely transforming the economic destinies of nations, and of course, it's shaping society in ways that we don't fully understand yet either. Right, because we're in the midst of it. And I use this example in the book, where even during the Industrial Revolution or during the, you know, the invention of the Gutenberg press, like these transformative eras. When you look back, you understand the significance of them, but. Possibly the people, when they were living through it, uh, didn't quite understand the the massive impact that these uh, trends were going to have on how our lives are lived, who are the new winners and losers in the world, etc. And so that's why I've called it the Great Tech Game, to give that conceptual framework for people to understand the breadth and the scale at which tech is shaping our world. And also to understand that, you know, much like earlier, earlier revolutions in a way or earlier transformative eras, the great tech game will also create a new set of winners and losers. And that will depend on who uh, or which regions, nations understand the game the best, right? And then play the game mm. the best and have a game plan to win. If you don't understand the game, there's a high likelihood that you're going to not win uh, or at least not do well in it. And that's really the motivation to write the book. This concept that something is missing is the same concept that led me to establish the Tech Policy Design Centre at ANU, that we need to inject that understanding of the way that technology is reshaping our world, but also the fact to remind ourselves that humans make technology and therefore we can shape technology differently, but we need to be actively engaged in that conversation. So one of the things you quote in your book is uh, Jamie Susskind, who is a, a UK barrister, but also an academic 
academic. And incidentally, he was in Canberra uh, last week and I, I met him and went to one of his lectures, which was great. You quote him in the book as saying that we're not yet ready intellectually, philosophically or morally for the world that we are creating. Can you explain what you mean by this? And I think it helps drill down on that point of that that something was missing um, and also share your thoughts on what we need to do to be better prepared. And then after that, I'd love to pick up on the point that you made about the rules of the game, because I think uh, that's uh, also very interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, so I think as as Jamie has very, I think, succinctly put in that quote that I, that I used in the book, you know, we are creating this world day to day, like our tech companies, our governments, uh, our entrepreneurs, our engineers are creating technology that is shaping our world, shaping our daily lives, shaping the behaviors of people all around us, right? But without giving much thought to the clear implications it has for what values get prioritized, for what underlying principles get uh, propagated basis that, right? So I think that unfortunately, when we don't think holistically, much like I think you were trying to do with your center, as you just said, unless the people who are designing the technology, unless people who are creating some of these technologies are also thinking about the other implications, the societal implications, the economic implications, the political implications of the technology they are creating, I think that what ends up happening is that we don't understand what we are doing, right? It's it's a bit like just studying something, you know, or learning something by rote without really understanding it. And I think that unfortunately, some of that happens today where technology sometimes gets designed just to optimize, let's say, for attention or for time spent on, you know, big tech sort of social media platforms. And And really the question is, is that what we want to optimize for as a society, as a world, right? Is that, as you rightly said early on, is that the problem we, many of us who are in the tech venture capital startup world, is that the problem we uh, were looking to solve for? No, right? So I think that the moment you start thinking about the implication, the broader intellectual, philosophical, societal and moral and value-driven implications, I think that you can then actually better design technology to solve for the problems you're looking to solve for and to adhere to the values that you hold there as a society. And I think that's really important, right? I think you also said that tech should not just be shaping humans, humans should also be shaping tech. And I think that kind of two-way street is extremely important. And I think the other piece I'll mention is that because of the multidisciplinary way or sort of this completely like you know transformative way in which tech is shaping our world we cannot have people only from a single discipline be thinking the or shaping the discourse around this right it cannot be just engineers or tech folks or venture capitalists or entrepreneurs shaping this discourse or these decisions ultimately this is a you know as some some people have said this is a an all of society type efforts you'll need philosophers you'll need sociologists you'll need psychologists You'll need economists, you'll need scientists, you'll need, you know, all people from all kinds of disciplines to weigh in on this so that we can learn both the lessons from history, avoid some of the mistakes we've made. And by the way, this is not the first time that we are sometimes, I think, taking what's shaping our world from a very narrow lens, right? In the industrial era, as I say in the book, we did, we made choices around energy, right? Very specifically to take that example, that at that time seemed to emphasize scale and efficiency and cheaper cost of production. But look, 200 years later, the the kind of mess that we've landed up in, right? The kind of ecological disaster that we are now mm-hmm. in. And so it's, you know, that's a clear example of how if we were to not make the choices from a holistic standpoint today, then in the great tech game, also there's a likelihood we'll end up making significant mistakes that only later we'll realize uh, the, the the scale and the impact of. Yeah, and I think certainly from an environmental perspective, one of the things that I find is often missing in the conversation is the impact of technology on the environment, both in terms of energy use, but also disposal of technology. I think there is really not enough attention paid about that. It's one of the elements of uh, looking at the way that technology is designed, manufactured, used and disposed is is um, one of the sort of mantras that I advocate for. Let's look at the rules 
of the great tech game because I, I, your book outlines these really well. And in particular, what are the new rules and perhaps what are the rules that no longer apply that have become redundant in the world of the, the great tech game? Yeah, so I think there's so many, right? I think the game has completely changed. I think if we were living in uh, the industrial era, or let's say the, even the capitalist era that I described, the rules of the game, the economic grade game or the geopolitical grade game or the societal impact of these was completely different, right? So during the industrial era, and if you look at traditional industrial businesses, there are uh, economic concepts that underlie who succeeds in, in, in the industrial era or the capitalist era, right? So to give you a very simple example on the economic side of this, there were, you know, if you took a company like GM, there was a clear global value chain that they had built, a supply chain, so to say, which was very linear, right? So you had parts being created in different parts of the world that were then going to get aggregated and then assembled as a car and then shipped globally, right? It was a fairly linear value chain that you could study and as a nation, figure out your place in it, that, okay, I'm going to try and create mm. these components or I'm going to be this is going to be my role in that value chain or supply chain for, let's say, a large company like GM. However, today, if you look at a Facebook or a Meta or a Google, it's very hard for you to figure out what that global value supply chain for a Google looks like, right? The the ecosystems now that the big tech firms are evolving are different from the value chains in a way that the GMs of the world created. And so the question then becomes, how do nations figure out their own role within this economic great game, right? The economic great tech game. How do you figure out what role you'll play? And unfortunately or fortunately, the, the, the way these ecosystems are evolving, they are more and more concentrating the power in the hands of a few in that ecosystem. Whereas, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and I mentioned this in the book, whereas GM probably had about 100,000 suppliers, which meant that the value was getting distributed much more widely around the world when a car was yeah. uh, being created. Today, when Google creates a product, most of that value is actually accumulating only to Google, right? Uh, accruing only to Google, right? And very little goes to other players that might be supporting Google in some way. And so that's, an, that's, you know, that's a very clear example of how the economic wealth is also getting concentrated. And you're seeing the results thereof, right? You're seeing companies that are going up in value like to trillions and trillions of dollars of uh, of market cap, which shows the kind of concentration that's happening. So that's a that's an example of how the game is changing. And hence, you can't be thinking now, mm-hmm. now like, let's say the Southeast Asian nations thought, uh, you know, in the second part of the 20th century, that here, let's figure out what pieces we'll be building for these global supply chains, right? Today, as in India or as in Australia, we have to understand like that we have to figure out our place in this tech ecosystem, the global tech ecosystem, and it's not going to be as simple as how it was, let's say, earlier. Right? So that's one example. But then there's obviously also the geopolitical. And then I think as you and I have also discussed in the past, there's the governance of it, right? what I call setting the rules of the game itself. Mm. Right? I think much like in the post-World War II era when the emergent power, the U.S. at that time, set up these Bretton Woods institutions as the governance mechanism uh, for how they wanted the world to be governed. Today, we are seeing the emergence of a whole new set of institutions and paradigms to govern how the great tech game will play out, right? And who the and what the winners believe, or what the emerging winners uh, believe the values that they want to propagate now in this new governance system, right? And that's where I think we're seeing a battle of the values between uh, uh, some different uh, potential winners of this great tech game. And and as a result, I think this whole governance piece, and I'm sure we'll get more into that piece, but I think even setting the rules of the game from a governance standpoint, right? Who decides the rules of cybersecurity? Who decides when uh, or what constitutes cyber war who decides uh, you know whether cryptocurrencies should be acceptable or not like should cryptocurrencies and cbdc's digital currencies coexist with paper money and digital money or who will decide uh, the rules around all of this or who decides what the standards are that will get accepted globally right that then determines winners and losers as well in the tech world 
So I think there are some emerging questions, right, that are very, very difficult questions that we'll have to now address. Mm. Let's pick up on that uh, global governance point. Can you perhaps uh, set out for us the way or possible ways you think the global governance system could evolve. So, and and you go, you look at this in part four of your book, and you go in, into quite some detail about institutions like the UN or the ITU, um, International Telecommunications Union, for example. What do you think is a realistic path for these global governance institutions to take? And do you think, I guess, also what's the worst case scenario? So let's be optimistic and pessimistic, and and see if we can find a find a way through. So I think the realistic path forward seems to be unfortunately playing out as a scenario where you might have a splintering of this global governance institutional framework, right? So I think when you and I spoke last a few months ago, I think it wasn't maybe as clear, but I think the last few months have shown that that kind of splitting of the governance mechanism, splitting of potentially even the internet is actually now even more likely than it was maybe last year, which I think as a result will mean that global governance, where by which we mean that, you know, there'll be a commonly set, agreed set of rules and values and principles that hopefully the vast majority of the world agrees on, that is seemingly now, I think, a lot more unlikely. So I think the optimistic scenario, Joanna, would have been that despite the difficulties, much like you know, people said in the in the in the nuclear era, when suddenly you had nuclear weapons and you had to figure out, okay, how are you gov- how are you going to govern the spread and use of nuclear weapons? There was a lot of pessimism if you go back into the fifties and sixties around how you would be able to do it, whether you'd be able to do it. Uh, but over time, uh, at least to a certain degree of success, obviously not fully successful, but the major powers, the major nuclear powers and others were able to figure out ways in which at least that, that they agreed on certain principles and values on how to govern nuclear proliferation. Right Now, similarly today, the optimistic scenario would have been that despite differences, despite the competition, despite this idea that there can only be one winner in this great tech game and not multiple winners. Despite that hope that, you know, these countries countries around the world could have come together to agree on a certain set of rules, it's seeming unlikely today. I still do hope that, that these are just sort of blips and that we'll still be able to understand that we'll have to have rules around cybersecurity, we'll have to have rules around cyber war, we'll have to have rules around use of bioweapons or uh, and things like that, because otherwise, if we don't, we end up in a scenario where I think, much like in the nuclear world, there could be mutually assured destruction, because you have so much power to 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 hurt each other. And so, I think the optimistic scenario would be that the leaders take a slightly longer historical view and try and figure out how the world really should be governed and how problems, even if they arise between major powers should still be resolved through diplomacy, through negotiation, and through, you know, just working through these problems, as opposed to figuring out, okay, how do we split the world into two, and now you live your uh, values in your world, and I live my values in my world. I think that that seems like a very pessimistic outcome. Some of these issues we talked about in an earlier episode of the podcast and particularly the implications of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and and one of the conclusions out of that podcast, which was with um, Michelle Markov, the acting US coordinator for cyber affairs and Heli Timor-Klar, who used to be a negotiator of the UN with me and has since taken up a similar academic role to mine. During that conversation, we were observing the fact that actually the the, uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine has really galvanised the West, that there is much more of a sense of the Western commonality and that we have something in common to be standing for and, and I guess, bluntly to be fighting for. And then obviously there there are um, those who have a particular view and ally with Russia, but there are a large number of countries, of which India is one, who really resent this this depiction of sort of choose one or the other and India is you know as a as a leading voice in the non-aligned movement and discussions at the United Nations has been a very 
vocal voice of what I refer to as countries in the middle, the, the middle ground who say, well, we don't want to pick and choose values. We actually want to engage with everybody. And so I'd be interested in your thoughts of, is your reflection that the Russian invasion of Ukraine has also made the divisions clearer, but also made the countries in the middle more clear? I'm not sure that I'm phrasing a question very well for you there. So I think that you're right that the Russia-Ukraine crisis has definitely galvanized the West, has has made, I think, a lot of Western uh, nations, Western European and America, of course, understand that the stakes are big if they are not clear about what they want and how they want the world to be uh, and to stand up for it in many ways because I think the the fight is now at a point where I think the stakes are big and the the players are now on a more confrontational path than, than they were, let's say, five, seven, eight, ten years ago. And I think that's definitely galvanized the West. I think from a from the perspective of nations like India, let's say, that still emphasize two things, right? One is that you don't want war because war ends up not creating conducive conditions for economic growth, right? Which is probably the most important thing from a from the perspective of a country like India. Uh, and second is that ultimately in your economic development path, if you need X, Y, Z things to grow, and any kind of global geopolitical conflict is going to take away some of those ingredients that you need for your rapid, sustained economic development and security, by the way, right? If any of those elements are going to be taken away because of broader geopolitical conflict, then of course you don't want that kind of geopolitical conflict to assist, right? Or to play out in ways that will prevent you, right, from being able to do what you want to do for the economic growth of your nation. So I think from an Indian standpoint, very particularly, I think India wants to be able to, India needs at least three, four more decades of very high levels of growth to take its entire nation, right? We're a billion point three people uh, in India. And, you know, there's there's a lot of work to be done on the economic front for us to emerge as a, nation that can provide economically for all, all our people, right, in India. And I think that this kind of choosing, having to choose, having to choose who you can trade with, who you cannot trade with, having to choose who you can be friends with, not be friends with, having to choose that, okay, I can only sell to these markets and not to those, right? Ultimately, these have massive economic implications. And I think while the stakes are very different for developed nations, for an America here, because uh, the U.S. is obviously engaged in a economic competition with China, and I, and you know the stakes are massive there, obviously for both. But for India, the view is different, right? And and that's kind of p- partly why I wrote the book because the Indian perspective or the non-U.S. non-China perspective often on these issues is missing. And the reality is that unless you understand the perspectives of the other nations, you'll not be able to even predict how they're going to act, right? So in the case of India, I think these are the values that ultimately India is holding dear, right? Which is that of economic growth and development and unstinted and unconstrained economic growth is extremely important. And I think that's probably true of many other developing nations that say that, listen, we've lived through the Cold War, right? And that kind of having to choose might have worked for some, but I think ultimately didn't end up working for most countries, right? Because they ended up getting squeezed in one way or the other, even if they were very clearly aligned, right? Of course, there were countries like India that that tried to remain non-aligned uh, to at least certain levels. But I think either in for any of these countries, I think a Cold War type scenario is, I think, not optimal. And ultimately, what I think a country like India and many other countries want is that there should be a multipolar world that this doesn't have to be about just one winner, right? Or one or two poles, right? It should ideally be a multipolar world where Europe, North America, different parts of Asia, Southeast Asia, South Asia, right? I mean, there should be multiple such poles in a way or multiple such centers of economic growth and engines of economic growth that all of these nations can align with, right? And that doesn't mean that, oh, everyone's going to be friends with each other and it's all going to be hunky-dory, but it's just that, you don't want to have to be able to be seen as either with us or against us, 
Right? I think that kind of choice doesn't end up well, I think, for anyone. Yeah, and it's a perspective that uh, we're talking about what's missing in the conversations that is often missing in the conversations, um, the rationale for not choosing sides and that that being an economic and a development rationale, which, you know, makes perfect sense when you say it out loud. But, you know, when you see countries that are saying, well, why aren't you sanctioning Russia or why aren't you doing this? Putting it in that context really help, helps to, as you say, understand um, the motivation, but also to predict the, the behaviour as well. So one of the things you talk about in the book is looking at it in the national, at the national level, and you frame uh, the great game as a competition to achieve and maintain leadership in technology. Now, I think the conflict in Ukraine and steps like, for example, removing Russia from SWIFT, the global payments platform, withdrawal of Visa, MasterCard, these types of things will have great implications in terms of, we talked earlier about the potential splintering. I couldn't agree with you more that in terms of the game and the objective of the game being getting yourself into a position of leadership because uh, that position of being a tech leader delivers immense influence and power. Can you give some some perhaps specific examples? Because you have some in the book where you, you talk about uh, case studies of how being a tech leader delivers national power. And you also have some really interesting analogies with history as well, if you might draw on some of those. Yeah, so no, let me start off with the historical analogy right, that I've used in the book also that I thought it was fascinating and that most people actually don't know about, which was how telegraph was how the telegraph was weaponized in a way by the British, right? About a hundred odd years ago, equivalent of the internet back then was the telegraph, which was the main channel for communication, both for economic purposes but also for military purposes and for the colonial um, empires to maintain and manage their you know, their, their colonies around the world. And what you found once you like look into history is that Britain uh, back then controlled and basically ran the telegraph industry. It was British companies that were setting up these telegraph cables. It was British companies that had the ability to repair these cables if there were issues. And during peacetime, this was largely an economic you know, there was an economic angle to this, uh, obviously, right? Better communication led to better markets, better information flows, etc. But when it came to wartime, of course, one of the first things that Britain did in the pre in the in the early days of World War One and in World War Two was to use its strengths in the telegraph domain to cut off the telegraph cables uh, that were linking Germany with some other parts of the world. And, and, and so that's a clear example of when you have companies that control certain aspects of the tech ecosystem, right? During peacetime, it's seen only as an economic advantage. But of course, during wartime, that economic advantage then expands to give you military advantage as well, geopolitical advantage as well, right? So today I talk about how the undersea cables that, that of course, are the core infrastructure for the internet today, they are being laid by only a certain number of companies. There are about five or six major companies today that lay underwater cables, right? And they have the repair capabilities. There are French companies, Japanese companies, American companies, and of course, Chinese companies now more recently. But there aren't any Australian or Indian, I believe, right? For example, or even Russian, uh, as far as I understand. And so the question becomes, if tomorrow there was war, let's say between India and China or Australia and China or any different parts of the world, countries or companies of those countries that had the power to repair those cables have a distinct advantage, right? Similarly, countries or militaries that have the ability to cut off these cables have an advantage as well, right? So that's a clear example of how sometimes economic dominance of the tech world tomorrow will lead to military and national security advantages as well for countries. And and so hence, I think countries that don't understand this will end up in a disadvantaged position in case of war breaking out, etc. So that's one example. The other example I point to is around 
you know, surveillance and intelligence capabilities. Today, companies, uh, you know, big tech firms today have massive amounts of data that they gather, right? Our communications, everything are, uh, everything is reliant on the, the email services of certain companies, the cloud services of certain companies, the infrastructure services of certain companies. And those are largely companies that are concentrated in very specific parts of the world, right? So now one of the questions I ask is like, does being a tech nation give you a diplomatic advantage today as well? Of course, right? If you are the ones developing some of this technology or own this technology, you are obviously possibly at least getting a lot more access to information about other countries than the other countries are, right? One. Second, I think I talk about this, right? So today, if you talk about intelligence and surveillance, one of the main things, one of the main defenses countries have in, uh, in, in making sure that their privileged communications, whether on the military side or the government side, that those communications are encrypted, right? But now the flip side of the encryption is that there are massive supercomputers being built by countries and companies that can then decrypt these communications. So the ones that are building those supercomputers have a distinct technological advantage, obviously, but also a geopolitical and diplomatic advantage because they are able to actually uh, break through some of those defenses of other countries. There's just so many examples of how advantage on the tech front is now no longer an economic advantage only, but also military and geopolitical. We've talked a lot about countries. I want to talk a little bit about the role of companies. And you frame this as the role between big tech and the state as a key battle in shaping the political destinies of nations. And and you have an interesting analogy that you make with the British East India Company uh, here. So for you, what what is it about the way that big tech and countries are engaging that is so important? And what is there to lose, but also what is there to win if we get this right? Yeah, so again, I think going back to our earlier uh, point, right, Joanna, about having a non-US, non-China, non-major power perspective coming out through the book, one of the reasons I wrote about big tech versus state is that that battle is playing out everywhere, right? I, I think Australia has, had a, uh, has its own experience with it around the news, Please. Of course, India's had them had these battles play out in India, the US, Europe, China, Russia, the UK. Everyone's every nation uh, around the world is seeing this battle or the tug of war, as I call it, between big tech and state. But I think one of the perspectives that I wanted to make sure was being brought out was that many of the countries that were colonies during the earlier Great Game, right during the Great Colonialization Game that I talk about have an, an additional perspective on this, right, that I wanted to bring out and address. And that perspective is that when in your recent history you've been colonized by a large entity that came from outside of your country, right? In, in the Indian case, it was the East India Company, so that was the case for the entire British Empire in a way back then. There's a certain mistrust that you have of foreign entities from that historical lens as well, right? So the lens in the US, for example, is that this is about business and government only, right? This is the battle between business and government, right? The private and the public. But in the case of colonies or former colonies, like India, there's this additional lens that we don't want to end up being colonized again. And by that, I mean countries like India have, and governments of these countries, right, like India, are very clear that we don't want to end up in a situation where foreign entities will hold our political systems hostage, will hold the keys to our economic destiny, etc. Right, And that's fortunately, unfortunately, what drives the thinking and policy making of countries that were colonies earlier. Right? And, and I think that's important to understand again, right, and then address. I do believe that the parallels with the East India Company are not exact, are not necessarily pointing to the fact that we're living in a world of British colonialism necessarily yet. But there is nothing to say that we couldn't slide into a scenario where there is a very colonial relationship between big tech firms and, let's say, markets in smaller developing nations. It's possible, but not inevitable, as I say. 
Yeah, and I think the way that you contextualize it, there there are many uh, differences between big tech and the East India Company. But I think the way that you phrase it in the book is the East India Company came in to trade. It turned into a political and a military force, and then it had geopolitical implications. And when you put it in that sort of historical progression, rather than perhaps some of the the other details, it really, again, it it just helps to contextualize. For those of us who might initially hear that and go, oh, that's that's interesting. But then when you actually look at the history of how that unfolded, it again provides um, a, a lot of context for that point of view. No, so absolutely. I think that the economic implications are, are what have become clearer first in the early stages, right, of when large companies are active in other countries. But I think that when the stakes become too big, then of course there has to be uh, there, there end up being political implications of trying to protect those stakes or protect access to those markets. And I think that inevitably, if the stakes are big enough, lead to geopolitical and military conflicts as well. So I think once we have that historical perspective, then it's very important to keep that in mind, but also not let it shape uh, your views overly. Right. So the other piece I mentioned in this chapter on district colonialism, Joanna, is that sometimes this anti-colonial mindset in developing nations that were colonies earlier, sometimes is almost used as a as a crutch to deflect or defend or to stop any foreign entities from coming and trading in your country or coming and being active in your country. And I think that should not happen either. Right? So while I think it's important to be mindful of history and the stages in which sometimes the economic can lead to geopolitical and military issues, it's at the same time very important that countries don't use colonialism as a crutch to prevent the, the adoption of technology or the penetration of new technologies. I think, unfortunately, sometimes it does get used as a crutch. And that, I think, is, again, unfortunate from an economic standpoint. And that's why the rules of the game become very important. Right? As long as you're setting the rules of the game well, and engaging on an equal footing with the big tech firms, then I think nations are well off, right? So that's one. I think the other question you asked is, okay, how is this battle likely to be playing out over time? And I think that what are the implications if we don't manage it well, right? And I think from a from a country like, let's say, India's perspective, the implications of not managing it well is that you'll end up not being a player in the game. Right, which means that you lose out a lot on the economic benefits. So today it's very easy for countries to say, okay, I'm going to block XYZ big tech platforms because I don't like how they are using their data or I don't like the fact that they're not storing the data in my in servers in my country and so on. So that's very easy to do right? because ultimately governments set the rules of the game domestically at least. And so it's very easy for countries to do that. But I don't think that's necessarily the wise economically wise thing to do, right? Ultimately, I think where India is also landing up primarily is that India is saying that, listen, we obviously want as many innovative tech firms to be operating in India, whether they're global or Indian. Unlike, let's say, China that has said no to many other foreign big tech firms. India is saying we want all of them to be operating here. We want our consumers to benefit from it. We want our engineers to be benefiting by you know, being employees and managers and senior executives in these firms. And obviously, there are the trickle-down effects of having some of these big tech firms in your country, right, uh, which are all positive. I think, however, what's really important for countries to get right is the balance here, right? And I, I'm not sure if I talk about this in the book in great detail, but as I see it, there's a triangle of relationships that has to be balanced. There's the big tech firms on one end of this triangle, there's governments on the other, and then there's citizens of society as the third aspect of the triangle, right? And I think that as long as a balance is maintained, and that's why I call it the tug of war, because as long as a balance is maintained between the power, influence, and control being exercised by these three elements of the triangle, the citizens, the government, and big tech firms, I think that we'll end up well off. However, if any of these one become too powerful, overly powerful, then I think the other two suffer. Also, if big tech firms and governments were to get together, 
which today we are not necessarily be too worried about because today we are seeing that battle playing out between the two. But it's very much possible that ultimately these two get aligned, right? And I think, of course, we talk about this in the context of authoritarian nations, that the big tech firms there are very much aligned with government, and that's scary for the citizens. But I think even in democratic nations, there's a very real fear that big tech firms and governments get aligned and come into this uh, mutually sort of beneficial, I scratch your back, you scratch mine type relationship. And then I think the citizens will really suffer. right? So I think it's very important for society to maintain a balance between this triangle of relationships. Uh, the negative implications of this balance being broken will be clear from a you know, liberty standpoint, freedom standpoint, privacy standpoint. And I think the if the relationship is managed well, then I, I think we all come out a winner. Because then I think that we'll see the benefits accruing from the innovations that big tech firms come out with. We see the benefits of governments protecting civil liberties and democratic rights in the rules of the game. And citizens get the economic benefit while maintaining their political freedoms. Right? So I think that that's basically that triangle is how I think about it. Mm. I think one of the the traps that we often have is that we we fall into thinking about big tech being representative of the entire tech ecosystem and particularly in the context of startups and innovation, et cetera. So within your triangle that you're describing there, where do you see the role of, of the tech industry more broadly rather than these super powerful concentrated concentration of power, which I have to say is not just US tech companies. There's also a number of very large Chinese tech companies that also hold that concentration of power. I think that the, so two things there, right, Joanna? One is I think that even though there are other players in the tech ecosystem, I think the big tech firms definitely have a disproportionately, well, I don't know if it's like disproportionate, I mean, they are larger. They do have a massive, massive influence on, 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 on the dynamic that we were just talking about. I think more so than smaller startup firms. Now, of course, I think that What's very interesting is in the world of tech VC, et cetera, now, and, you know, it's it's all coming out into uh, the policy circles also, is this idea of Web3, right? The idea of Web3 and crypto now and blockchain, right? Now, these newer technologies, in a way, are trying to do what governments are trying to do through regulation, right? So governments through regulation are trying to make sure that big tech firms do not become monopolistic. Big tech firms do not become overly powerful and influential, and and the chosen route is through regulation. Right? Europe Europe is doing it. Other countries are doing it as well around the world through antitrust movements and so on. However, what's very interesting, I think, is that technology sometimes can also serve as a solution here. So I think the whole Web 3.0 movement is actually intended to make sure that certain firms do not become overly powerful, that data does not get too centralized in the hands of a few, that power does not get in, uh, sort of constantly in the hands of a few. And I think that's very interesting. I think that the Web3 movement itself is leading to the emergence of absolutely new winners, which are not the Googles and Facebooks of the world, right? You have absolutely new companies that are building the blockchain architecture that are building the crypto exchanges and so on and so forth. And I think that ultimately technology is, is, a, is a sector in a way that sees such rapid innovation that oftentimes the answer to the dominance of a few large big tech firms will lie in technological evolution itself, where tech evolution will lead to new tech winners, right? And those new tech winners will, in a way, dilute the concentration of power, concentration of data that we have seen over the last decade, right? So I think that we shouldn't rely only on regulation and policy as a way to address this concentration, but also look at, okay, how can the tech world itself, how can tech innovation itself maybe provide some answers to make sure that that balance is maintained in that trend? Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. And I, I think the one slight addition I'd add to that is though, as we embark upon concepts like Web3 and, and for listeners, this is something that we, we will do a dedicated podcast on. But I think 
the the challenge is ensuring that we don't repeat the same mistakes with Web3 as we have done with the World Wide Web, because many of the founding principles of the World Wide Web were exactly the same, right? To to I mean, it wasn't um, to have the concentration of power, move the concentration of power away from tech companies. It was in essence to move the concentration of power away from governments and a very libertarian view. So how do we ensure that these new technologies actually deliver on that promise this time? And I think that regulation and policy probably does play a very important role in that. But as I said, that's a whole nother podcast. So let's, uh, I'm conscious of time. So I'm going to skip to towards the end of your book, and I'm not going to give anything away, but you particularly evaluate the impact of technology on human relationships, community and culture. And you talk about the way that you see that technology is shaping the way that we behave and even the way that we think. Uh, And you suggest we're at a digital crossroads where the decisions that we make now will impact the way that humans behave and think for generations to come, and including the the decisions we make around uh, Web3, for example. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of multiverse, which is not to be confused with the concept of metaverse, which is also relevant in the context context of future discussions. But let's for a moment suspend reality and uh, assume that we can go forward into a universe where everything in the great tech game went well. What were the critical decisions that we had to make now to make the great tech game play out well? And what does this universe where the great tech game has played out so well, what does that universe look like uh, for someone engaging in that on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so I think that the main decision or main choice that I think we today need to make is what we discussed early on in our conversation today, Joanna, which is that do we see tech shaping us as a unidirectional dynamic or do we be clear that ultimately the starting point has to be our values, right? What values do we hold dear? What are the problems we are looking to solve? What are the constraints we are looking to remove, right? If those are the starting points of our problem solving, then I think we end up in a scenario or a universe where we are not just more aligned in uh, you know the the values that the technology that we use uh, adheres to one, but I think also more importantly we are solving for the right problems. Then right, I mean there I mean one of the things that often the tech startup world, the tech VC world, is criticized for by by those who are not within it is that it's solving for problems that are not necessarily core to the human condition. Right? So I'll give you an example. In India, there's a lot of criticism right now that we are going from one-hour grocery deliveries, or one-day grocery deliveries to you know few hours to now 10 minutes. Right? And so billions of uh, rupees and millions of dollars are being poured in to solve that problem. Right? Whereas many in the broader society say that, listen, there are much bigger problems to be solved. For example, climate. Why isn't more money being poured into climate tech to solve for climate tech? Rather than trying to optimize for 30-minute deliveries to go to 10-minute deliveries and so on and so forth. So I think that to me is a clear example of a value decision. Like, What are the values we hold here in society? Are, Are we holding convenience? and rapid delivery and at the whims and fancies of the consumer as the core value we want to keep solving for, which is largely, again, an industrial value, industrialization era value. This whole idea of convenience and consumerism. And so the question is, do we want to hold that value dear in the great tech game? Or do we want to hold the value of ecological balance as a core value for us? And if that's the case, then From a tech standpoint, we have to make sure that the dollars or the rupees are also getting allocated to the problems we really need solved, where technology can play a role, right? So even in our work now, we are shifting much more towards climate tech rather than just internet tech because we believe that that's a real problem to be solved. Tech has a role to play. Tech, of course, has its own climate implications, I think as you alluded to earlier, but more importantly to me, like 
today tech can play a great role in capital efficient ways of solving climate problems right uh, whether it's on the food side whether it's energy efficiency whether it's mobility clean mobility clean power generation and so i think it's very important for us to start from what values we hold dear what objectives we have as a society and then think about okay how can technology solve for those problems as opposed to technology coming up with solutions that we then say okay now let's try and figure out how do we spend money on adoption of this 10 minute delivery product right so i think that's the kind of flipping the the coin on its head type thinking i think that we need here to make sure that we don't end up in a universe that we don't like or that further generations future generations say hey listen those guys might have been optimizing for convenience but that was stupid just like today we look back and say optimized for things that we shouldn't have optimized for that has shaped our values shaped our consumerism but now we are in a situation where our air is not clean our water is not Yeah and I think this concept that we have you know some of the world's smartest brains working for these incredible companies building you know frankly like technologically astounding terribly complex things uh, and let's focus them on solving the problems that need to be solved and this comes back i guess to the opening question we ask in every episode of the podcast which is how do we ensure that technology is making our lives better and that does require us to really focus in on what the what the problems that need to be solved are uh, but also how do we incentivize technologists to be solving those problems so i'm very conscious of time you've been so generous with your time with us today before we wrap up uh, we always ask our guests as a last question whether you have any books or recommendations articles things that you read or would recommend to people looking to learn more about uh, this subject and i really do commend to everyone the great tech game the book that we've been discussing today i think it it really does provide a very valuable insight and a slightly different perspective than i had previously read before but from your side what what would you recommend So I recommend a lot of different things I could recommend. I've just written a book where I've <laughs> tried to talk to uh philosophers and sociologists and psychologists and economists talk, thinking about tech and uh so I really would recommend that people listen to not just tech venture capitalists about how tech is shaping our world but also to philosophers, also to economists, also to psychologists. also to sociologists right so i would actually say that if anyone's really interested in understanding that broad perspective it's very important to listen to voices that are from outside the tech world and outside the policy world right uh, and there are amazing people uh, joanna who are thinking about tech and its impact and how we need to shape tech to make sure that you know it it, it is used for the better ment of society who are philosophers right people like yuval harari or technically historians philosophers they're also talking about this then of course you have psychologists talking about it you have a lot of economists who are talking about this so i think instead of you know naming let's say two three podcasts or twitter handles to follow i would just encourage everyone who's listening to try and seek out people from other disciplines and see what they are thinking and how they are thinking about how tech is shaping their world and of course the human behavior piece right which which is the last part of my book i think there are a lot of people now talking about how tech is shaping our values tech is shaping our human behavior you know there are folks like cal newport etc whose work i've read and benefited from and i think it's very important for us to read about how it's shaping us as humans is probably the most important piece for us as individuals to understand so that we can also manage the use of tech in our lives better right i say that it's a core skill like swimming and driving today so much like you would teach your kids how to swim and how to drive safely you've got to as 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 families as individuals figure out how to use tech safely and and you know with the right rules in place right or the right principles in place so that it doesn't overtake us or that we don't end up using it in ways that harms us more than benefits us 
Well, that is a fabulous note on which to end. end uh, Anna Rhodes, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Uh, we really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, Joanna. This was a pleasure, as always, to speak about such a wide range of issues. I recommend the book. It's an easy download on Kindle here in Australia, so I recommend people have a read. Thank you so much, everyone. Talking Tech Policy is a podcast of the Tech Policy Design Centre at the Australian National University. This episode was produced by Jack Fox. Thanks also to Ben Gowdy for his research and post-production support. We would be most grateful if you could subscribe, rate the pod, leave us a review, or perhaps give us a shout out on social media or around the water cooler at work. All of these things help us to get the word out and the more interest we have, the better we can make the podcast. Please also do let us know if there's a topic that you would like us to cover in future episodes. Thank you for listening. And until next time, get in touch and get involved.